Taking your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 27. We continue our reading in Luke's sequel, The Acts of the Apostles. And you can see we are coming near to the end. I estimate three messages remain, including this morning's, which will be very convenient for the pastor to have a few uh, Reformation sermons, perhaps, before we begin a new book reading. Acts chapter 27, I remind you that the Apostle Paul in Acts 27 is still under arrest. He was arrested back in chapter 21, and he remains incarcerated all the way through to the end of the book. Uh, Luke, of course, is reporting uh, from the history that he himself has worked out in his research or that he himself was part of. And in our reading today, you're going to hear the word we several times. This means Luke is on the boat. Luke is one of the brothers in Christ with Paul at this point, along with a man by the name of Aristarchus, who is mentioned in several of Paul's letters as a fellow worker, and at one point a fellow prisoner with Paul. He is also on the boat. Let us pray and then read the chapter. Gracious God, we do ask for your help now upon this occasion of publicly reading scripture, as is your command, and its preaching, as is your will. We ask for your help then. We know you approve of that which we are to do, but Lord, we confess that we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your ministry through your Holy Spirit, both in the pulpit and the pew. Help us, we ask. Help us to understand. Help us to believe. Help us to see our lives reformed by having heard your word. Help us to do your will. All for the end that we would glorify you with our believing, glorify you with our doing, and enjoy you. We ask, Lord, that this would be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramatum, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of Salome. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, 
not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to, than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a, temp a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the citrus, they lowered the, the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island." When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. 
Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on the planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This is God's word. One of the beautiful hymns that came out of the Protestant Reformation was the hymn, Be Still My Soul, by Katharina von Schlegel. She wrote the original in German in the year 1752. It is in your own songbook that's in front of you. No need to look it up right now. Von Schlegel wanted to quiet her own soul as she looked out on the turbulence and the tumult that seemed always very near to the children of God, especially during the tumult of the Reformation. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Von Schlegel wanted to help bring the soul of every Christian believer into a God-centered frame of spirit, whereby faith, God's secret plan and his gracious purpose and his powerful presence is recognized by the believer as the dominant factor in every circumstance, especially every difficult circumstance, every unnerving circumstance, every things-are-out-of-control circumstance. The blood of Jesus Christ has reconciled the sinner to the power and to the reach and to the arm of the Almighty God. Von Schlegel knew this. The Lord is on thy side. Much hardship can befall you, Christian, but in Christ nothing can be against you. This is because of Jesus Christ. All things are ordered and held together in God's faithfulness for you, to you. This is what Katharina urged her brothers and sisters to see and to rest upon in her hymn. And it is why von Schlegel's second stanza speaks so excellently to the seafaring events of Acts 27. Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. The waves and winds have not forgotten the voice of Jesus Christ. The waves and winds have not become ignorant of their master. He ruled them while he walked the earth in his humiliation. He rules them even now while he is in the heavens in his exaltation. 
Do you remember, do you remember when Jesus was asleep in a boat? A great storm had risen on the sea. His disciples were in a panic. Jesus was napping through it all. They had to wake him up just so they could yell at him. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Matthew 8, 25. He said, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? They had not factored into the chaos who Jesus was. They had not factored into the whole matter our Lord's own peacefulness. They had not factored that through Jesus they had been reconciled to every earthly power. It says, Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Beloved, do you know that the earth belongs to the Lord? Do you know that whatever physics and whatever mental deficiencies cause two cars to crash into each other on a country highway, that all of those things belong to the Lord? Do you know that whatever moves one nation to invade another nation, that all of that belongs to the Lord? He, of course, is not the author of sin, but he governs and orders and arranges all things. Nothing is outside his rule. Not the smallest thing, not the biggest thing. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3. Why? Because Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature There is nothing that does not yield to his voice. And if something is not yielding, it's because he has not commanded it to yield. Beloved, this is surely one of the main lessons of Acts 27. The Christian is to pass through all his afflictions, recognizing the dominant factor in them is not the affliction itself, but the hand of God a hand to which we are reconciled by Christ's blood, a hand that is present with divine grace, divine purpose, and divine power, a hand which we can kiss in every matter, even if we have to yet report to the police. God is first. We are reconciled to this hand that rules In verse 23 of our reading, Paul speaks to the men of the ship about the God to whom I belong. This is Paul's way of saying the dominant factor in this 14-day storm is not the storm. The dominant factor is my God who claims me as his own. I am not alone, Paul is saying. It is not me against the storm. It is not me against the sea. My God is with me and for me. He has led me into this storm. 
He is with me in the storm. He is ordering and governing the storm. And he is giving to me for the sake of Christ some good thing which I would not have had without the storm. And what might that be? Well, in 2 Corinthians 1.8, speaking of a different hard situation, a letter written before the events of Acts 27, Paul says this, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, Jesus Christ is so good, so great, he gives his children things that they wouldn't have had if they had not been brought to the edge of extremity under his careful care. You are blessed of God when you stop relying on yourself. You are blessed of God when you stop relying on tricks, lies, cheating, cruelty, hiding. When you stop relying on all these things to deal with things out of control, you stop relying on yourself. You are blessed of God when you rely on the power of God in prayer because you know that every earthly thing has been reconciled to you by the blood of Christ, who is Lord over all. When you start praying instead of cursing, you are blessed. But this great blessing, as we read in our text, does not come to us on easy street. For two years, Paul's in prison in Caesarea. Before that, he's in prison in the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem, in captive by Romans. The Jews of the city want to tear him to pieces. Forty of them have taken a pact not to eat until they kill him. There are assassins running afoot, hoping to see Paul in an open caravan of prisoners so that he can be killed. All of that looks like it's behind him when he gets on this ship. Well, it turns out to be two ships because they get on a different one that's heading from Alexandria to Italy. All of those things look to be behind him, and Julius is merciful to him, lets him go ashore at Sidon and be cared for by the community of believers for a day or two. But Paul moves from the frying pan into the fire. This is the ways of God with his servants because he's drawing forth a testimony to his greatness as their savior and deliverer, a testimony he designs to put upon the earth in your life and my own. Now, there are other lessons we must take from Acts 27. That was the first. A second lesson is this. The whole world is ordered and governed for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the only end for which the whole world is ordered and governed by God. But it is one of the pillars for which the whole world is ordered and governed, the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Everything that happens to the 276 men on board this ship happens to them in order to get Paul in front of Caesar with the gospel. Honey, what did you do on that 
voyage that took six months. Well, I, I got this preacher in front of Caesar. And boy, let me tell you how we did it. That's what this is about. It's a microcosm of the way the Lord is running the whole world today. Look at verse 24, where we have the words of the angel. At some point after they had been pushed out to sea, at some point after they had thrown the cargo and tackle overboard, at some point after the third night, at some point after many days, the text says, days of not seeing sun or star, on some night this angel appears saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Now, this is not the first time Paul has heard that his itinerary includes standing before Caesar in Rome. While in prison back in Jerusalem in the middle of the night, our Lord Jesus appeared to Paul at his bedside. Acts 23.11, Jesus said that night, you have testified about me in Jerusalem, Paul. You must also testify about me in Rome. Now, two years later, from that evening visit, on a ship headed for Italy, still under arrest, an angel confirms the earlier message, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. Why? to tell Caesar about the salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ. To tell Caesar that though his empire is glorious, it is not bringing men into the salvation of God. To tell Caesar that though his empire is glorious, it is part of a world that is passing away under the judgment of God. The Lord is going to put his little hobbit preacher in front of the great emperor, and testify to the salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ. And to get to Caesar means Paul will not die on this sea voyage. Not only will he live, but God has granted him all who sail with him to also live. And the use of the word granted there suggests that Paul had asked for this. What a Christian. What a Christian he was. To ask that the Lord would show favor to the souls of these men. They will share, these 275, notice what I did there. They will share in some of the bounty of God's kindness that he's pouring out upon the people of the earth, upon the ascension and enthronement of his king son. This is just like what happened at Potiphar's house. In Genesis 39.5, it says, The Lord blessed the house of Potiphar for Joseph's sake. But in Jesus, one greater than Joseph has come. In Jesus, a blessing greater than the blessing that Joseph brought has come. So now 276 houses, fathers, brothers, are going to be splashed upon with the grace of the high king. This is the true nature of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, beloved. It is not stingy. It is not calculating. It is generous and giving and life-affirming. What is wonderful to me is that Paul wants the men of the ship to know why they will live. <laughs> he doesn't keep that out. Verse 24, Paul 
is basically saying to the sailors, your life is caught up in my own life. And my own life is caught up in God's life. But not in some general way, but a very specific way. I, Paul, am constrained by God's grace to bring testimony before Caesar concerning Jesus Christ. The Almighty wants the good news of his salvation heralded before the leaders of Rome. This is why men of the ship... This is why the winds are blowing. This is why the seas are raging. This is why you are alive today and you will be alive at the end of this crazy voyage. Your lives are carried into the manifold workings of God to make his Christ known where he is not known through his church. We get to tell everybody that truth. Everybody. Why is anybody alive on the earth today? Their lives are caught up in this one meta narrative, if you will. We live in an age that despises meta narratives. A meta narrative is one story that rules all other stories. 30 years ago, philosophers and universities started writing a thing called postmodernism, and they tore down the idea of meta narrative. They didn't want meta narratives. They believed that every meta-narrative was oppressive and wrong. That there is, therefore, no one story that rules all stories. You cannot convince the Apostle Paul of that, nor should you desire to. It would be cutting the tree off from underneath you. It is the gospel of our salvation. Remember in Athens, Paul said the gospel even explains the present borders of all nations. Do you remember that? God made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Acts 17.26. Beloved, this means when you see a border change, that may be because of sin, and injustice. But by the rule of the risen Christ, he is advancing his kingdom of grace. That's Acts 17, 26. And this is where we should probably take special note of the fact that Paul spends most of this journey on the ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy. Who's manning that ship? Egyptians. The number one providers of corn or grain to the Roman Empire, specifically the, the bustling urban city of Rome, was Egypt. Nobody provided more to the city of Rome than Egypt. Look how the Lord is ruling over the nations and the people he gathers to his generous, prayerful, preaching apostle. The whole world, this is lesson two again, the whole world is ordered and governed for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is not ordered and governed for the advancement of America or the Wisconsin Badgers. It's hard to say. It is ordered and governed for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Remember the words of our apostle in 1 Corinthians 3.21, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, 
whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. God's. Everything has been reconciled to the church, the body of Christ, through the mediatorial ministry of God's Son. The, The present, the future, the world, every human being, every potentate, every pauper has been reconciled to the church for her to be gathered and brought into the kingdom and kept in it as our catechism says. So even your perseverance as saints is part of this entirety of the world being yours in Jesus Christ. Even when you get caught up in wars and rumors of wars or local urban disasters, when, even when these things hit you, all of this is governed by your risen king, to keep you in his kingdom, if not bring you into it. And so Paul says, and we've quoted this verse several times in our preaching through Acts, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Philippians 1.12. Well, Paul, what, is, what are you talking about? What has happened to you? He writes Philippians from prison in Rome. And you are reading in chapter 27 on his, about his journey to Rome as a prisoner. That is included in 112. Everything that has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I want to I be a weirdo who says stuff like that and believes it after things happen to me that... American middle-class neighbors think must be the most terrible thing to ever happen to you. If you do not know what I'm talking about, beloved, I'll give you a strong dose. I will email it to you today. A wonderful essay by John Piper and David Paulus entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Everything that's happening to you, everything, is ordered and governed and ruled by your Savior who has reconciled all those things to you for your good. Doesn't mean they are good. Cancer is not good. But it is reconciled to you for your good. A third lesson we must take from this chapter is as follows. It is the will of God that the word of God be heard and honored among men, even to their great blessing and happiness. It is the will of God that the word of God be heard and honored among men, even to their great blessing and happiness. Now that last phrase, even to their great blessing and happiness, is there because honoring the word of God is for God's sake first to recognize his authority to rule, to give him that which is his own in honor. He has spoken. He never lies. Everything he says, we should say, right, yes, amen. But we end up even blessed 
in giving his word honor. And that is one of the great lessons of this chapter. Did you notice who's speaking so much in this chapter? <laughs> you would think Paul is the captain of the ship, the way Luke writes this. Paul speaks four times, four statements or four many speeches, M-I-N-I. First, he speaks his mind regarding the plan to leave fair havens in verse 9. The majority on the ship said, we should not spend winter here. Paul says, um, I think we should. And Paul's not a genius when it comes to naval work, but he knows that the naval season ends in mid-September. And they are already past the fast. You see that capitalized in the text. That's the fast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which on this year of AD 59 was October 5th. It was one of the latest dates in a stretch of five years upon which the fast fell. So they are, they are beyond October 5th, and it's getting rough on the seas. And Paul says, we shouldn't go. We should stay where we are. And he sailed a bit. If, if you've been reading Acts, you know. Paul advised, verse 9, he advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Now this little speech is going to come back later to greatly establish Paul's authority and the authority of his words among them. The Lord is going to use all of this. It's a, it's a divine conspiracy to elevate the honor and authority of the word in God's apostle. The second speech, verse 21 and following, Paul tells of the special revelation he has from God. Now, did you notice that Paul does not take credit for this revelation? He doesn't come out like some kind of magician and says, hey, I know some stuff about how things are going to go down. He doesn't want the honor. He wants to bring them to God. He wants them to sit under the word of God. He wants them to trust the word of God. And in this second speech, 21 through 26, Paul brings forth two signs that are coming that will validate the authority and divinity of the word that he has just given them. There will be no loss of life. That's the first sign. And the ship must run aground. That's the second sign which means they won't fall apart in the middle of the sea, but they might fall apart after they run aground. Calvin rightly notes that in these signs in the speech, the men on the ship are given powerful sign that they may not think all that happens is by chance. The Lord is establishing the authority of his word through his servant, through his prophet, Paul is working as a prophet. Now, God could, of course, brought them all safe without the storm. He certainly could have done that, right? He could have brought this ship to Italy across the sea without a single cloud in the sky, and they all would have gotten off the ship safe alive. But apparently our living God, our gracious God, our wise God, desires to manifest his goodness and power to these men on the ship through rescuing them from great extremity. And as you know, men are so hard, so hard and dull toward God, that we often 
need to be knocked on the head more than once. And as you see these men having had testimony that Paul is God's prophet, they even at the end want to kill the prisoners and want to jump off the ship. And the centurion has to intervene. Now the third speech, verse 31. And now we are seeing that Paul is saying less and less because his authority has been established. Really, it's the authority of God through his servant. Verse 31, he simply says, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Why is Paul saying this? Not only because it's true, but because his heart is filled with mercy. He doesn't want these men to die. He doesn't want their lifeless bodies floating on the surf. He wants them to live. He's a Christian. It is wonderful to me that throughout these speeches, as the word of God through his messenger is established as true and authoritative, we get to see as Christians a sign of our own justification, don't we? What is happening in Acts 27 is an establishing the word of God as a sufficient authority for the safety of men. That is a sign of the very gospel that Paul is going to preach to Caesar. Because Paul is going to tell Caesar what he tells the Romans in his letter and what he tells the Galatians in that letter. He's going to tell them that you must believe the word of God that you are justified by faith alone and not insist that you have works that you can see that justify you. You must believe that God has forgiven your sins and has written your name in his book and says, justified. And there's nowhere to see it. Not in this earth. You must believe it. You must believe that God has spoken truthfully about your sins that they are all cast away by simple faith in Christ. And Paul is even in this ship, God through Paul is preparing these men to heed the authoritative, generous word, which makes them ripe to hear the gospel. Because what does every pagan believe? What did even many of the Jews believe? I'm only justified by the works that I can see. And Paul's gospel is going around and saying, no, no, no. If you can see your justification on the earth, you are damned. Your justification is at the right hand of God in heaven, in Jesus Christ. And then the fourth speech, it's again a speech of life, a speech of hope. It's where Paul himself eats bread in front of them and saying, men who are about to die don't eat. And so he offers them bread. He says, eat with me. And he's in a very physical, tactile way. He's, he's building up their hope. When you don't think you're going to live, it's hard to enjoy a sandwich. This is why they haven't eaten. One final lesson. The fourth lesson of Acts 27 is that providence is not ours to play with. We are not the lords of providence. And let's first then recall what is providence, 
even though it's all over the book of Acts, I've probably preached three or four sermons on it since we started this book. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, brings the question to us, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Providence is God's governance at the granular level, at the mid-level, at the macro level. It's his governance and ordering and ruling over everything that happens in the lives of his creatures. Here we learn in this fourth lesson, we learn something very important from Paul's warning in verse 10 to not leave fair havens. We learn something very important about providence. We should not expect a special providence when many ordinary providences have already been given. Sound rules of navigation in the Adriatic Sea were long established. You don't sail after mid-September. Paul knew it. He didn't need to go to school to give this advice in verse 9 and 10. We must not, as Christians, who know that all things are reconciled to us in Jesus Christ, we must not expect a special providence when many ordinary providences have already been given. Now, of course, the wonderful footnote there is sometimes in God's great kindness to us, he gives us a special providence even after we have sinfully overlooked all the ordinary providences. But let me go back to the main point here. It is not proper to say, let's do something risky. The Lord will take care of us because he loves us and he will bless our endeavor no matter how unwise it is according to established norms and habits. That is foolishness. That's pretending to be the Lord of providence. Such as, let's run across a three-lane highway. Nobody's ever done it successfully. We can do it because we're believers. And 75-mile-per-hour traffic has been reconciled to us by the blood of Christ. I can tell you today how that's going to end. And the Lord will have it end the way I think it's going to end for the benefit of all us who will remain alive. To not play with special providence. But there's also something about providence in verse 21. We learn something important in Paul's correction in verse 21. That it is proper to record our errors even when a kind and special providence has delivered us from our errors and has made our errors much less negative to us and to others. It is proper to record our errors. Paul says to the men on the ship, you should have listened to me. He understands that they left fair havens under the providence of God, but it doesn't silence him in telling them that they were foolish. He doesn't dwell on it over much, does he? And that's a wisdom right there. But he does recognize the error. So if we are looking at our cell phone while driving and end up running through a red light and we barely miss hitting another car, it is proper to say all the hard things that need to be said. 
even though God spared your life and their life. So this fourth lesson is a lesson on providence because there is much providential attention in the book of Acts. We learn from our apostle how to think rightly about the always ruling, ordering, governing hand of God. So here are the lessons in reverse by way of reminder. Providence is not ours to play with. We are not the lords of providence. It is the will of God that the word of God be heard and honored among men, even to their great blessing and happiness. Number three, the whole world is ordered and governed for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And last, Christians are to pass through all their afflictions, recognizing that the dominant factor in their afflictions is not the affliction itself, but the hand of the Almighty God, a hand reconciled to them by the blood of Christ, a hand that is always present with grace and power and purpose, a hand that we can kiss in every matter. Are you single? Longer than you want to be. What I'm about to say isn't the entirety of the pastoral care I would give on the matter, but it is in the top five things I would say. Are you single longer than you want to be? Kiss the hand of divine providence that has made it so. Perhaps your unwillingness to kiss that hand and honor God will reveal to you that work which he is yet bringing about in you, a peaceable humility before him. Are you married to the person you would say is the wrong person? Is your marriage relationship the hardest relationship in your life? Kiss the hand that is reconciled to you. It's not everything I would say to somebody in a hard marriage, but it doesn't get said often enough. Perhaps one of the ways that God is first working in your marriage is bringing what I just said to your ears, that you have quietly been steaming against the Lord himself. Everything has been reconciled to you. This raging sea has reconciled to Paul. So let us, brothers and sisters, recognize the dominant factor in all our afflictions is not the affliction itself, but the hand of God reconciled, us, reconciled to us by the blood of Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp before us. By it we see what was in darkness. And we confess that sometimes it was our own heart, our own mind that was in darkness. We don't want to be afraid to know you as you are. Lord, we pray that you would grant us the ministry of your spirit so that we can bear the truth about your sovereignty, your providence, and the presence of your hand in all things of our life. We confess and ask for your forgiveness if we have sinned against you by attributing hard things only to men, only to other persons, only to events, and not to your great governing wisdom. 
We thank you, Lord, that we can attribute that which is truly attributed to you, knowing that we cannot find in you the authorship of any sin. You are not the author of, our, of men's evil, but you are the one who turns that which is evil into that which is good. Lord, I thank you that Paul did not write a letter to the editor about the idiots running this ship out of Alexandria who left Fair Havens and shared his bitter grievances with the world. But instead, he was subdued by your spirit, by the light of your gospel, the same light that shone so brightly in Stephen the deacon's heart in Acts 7 when he asked that those who are stoning him to death right in the moment of getting hit by rocks, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We thank you that Paul, too, is a Christian. Lord, may we be Christians. May this very same gospel that has put away the hostility that we rightly deserve from heaven at your own expense in the death of your son, may this same hostility be depleted and removed from our own hearts. And we thank you for every lesson your word gives us today. In Jesus' name, amen.